Okay, everybody, join me in prayer as we get cranked up today. Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day, a beautiful outside weather day. Thank you for that. Thank you for the opportunity to be, to be in here. Thank you for the open doors and the opportunity to gather for worship. We know that your church is a people, not a place. And so I thank you for the precious souls that are gathered. And I ask that you would even enlarge our hearts now to receive, believe, and obey Your Word. Uh, somehow, Lord, take the truth of Your Word from uh, what it says clearly into our head and down to our hearts, all the way to our hands and feet. For the glory of Christ, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, everybody. Um, Good to see you all. Welcome. It would not have been a bad day to gather outside again as we did last Sunday, but thankful to be here. Uh, we are in week one of our three-part look at the 14th out of 15 articles. Next month, we'll conclude our systematic theology study through our Elder Affirmation. This month, we're devoting our attention today, Lord willing, next Sunday, and then the following to the death of resurrection and coming of the Lord. I have 79 slides. We have 25 minutes, so we'll see. Um, Article 14 reads in three slides, we believe that when Christians die, they are made perfect in holiness, are received into paradise, and are taken consciously into the presence of Christ which is more glorious and more satisfying than any experience on earth. We believe in the blessed hope that at the end of the age, Jesus Christ will return to this earth personally, visibly, physically, and suddenly in power and great glory, and that He will gather His elect, raise the dead, judge the nations, and establish his kingdom. We believe that the righteous will in pardon me. We believe that the righteous will enter into the everlasting joy of their master. Those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness will be consigned to everlasting conscious misery. Finally, we believe that the end of all things in this age will be the beginning of a never-ending ever-increasing happiness in the hearts of the redeemed as God displays more and more of His infinite and inexhaustible greatness and glory for the enjoyment of His people. Well, that's some words to say uh, in shorthand, this is as close to hell as any Christian will ever get. And this is as close to heaven as any non-Christian will ever get. So this life is the fulcrum, the hinge, and eternity is the long duration which will occupy the vast majority of our existence. So there are seven things I hope to show. Seven is a bonus. I got to get there because it's the best of all. So here we go. What do we want to see? This comes straight from the affirmation and I'll try to show you where. Uh, First is glorification. This is a doctrine that uh, all Christians have embraced. And it's one that you may have heard of, the doctrine of glorification. And it comes particularly from this phrase. We believe that when Christians die, they are made perfect 
in holiness. That's passive, it happens to us, and it is complete, it is perfect. Uh, it's almost impossible to imagine. We're finite creatures, so we are incapable of thinking non-temporally because we're time-bound. But one day, we will not be bound by that. So we talk about eternity past. That's kind of an oxymoron. Eternity future. Eternity is, by definition, eternal. Similarly, we talk about heaven, eternity, perfect holiness in categories that are impossible for us yet to conceive because we still retain our sin. When I say we will be perfect in holiness, we don't even have the capacity to understand what such an existence will be. But the Bible does hold out to us that hope. This is the doctrine of glorification. As the affirmation said, let me go back, they are made perfect. So that's what we're talking about. Hebrews 12 emphasizes that the future local church, the one church of heaven, will be perfect. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and ecclesia, the church of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel, that righteous made perfect, tell I owe, Teleao is our teleos academy, being made complete, made perfect. That's where we get that word. And that is coming soon for all believers. Also related to glorification, this will happen when we are received into paradise. And this is an important phrase, taking, taken consciously into the presence of Christ. You will be well aware of your immediate proximity to Jesus. So glorification is a conscious, with Christ, paradise. Luke 23, that should say 41 through 43. But the other thief answered, rebuking him, the other thief, do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Speaking of Jesus, and he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, you shall be with me in paradise. This immediate, conscious, with Christ, bliss, perfection. That's what glorification will include. And then the final phrase of point one of the affirmation says that this conscious with Christ made perfect in holiness paradise is more glorious and more satisfying than any experience on earth. Well, a lot of people think Christianity is a bunch of rules and stifle you and you can't do this and you can't do that. You got to do this and you got to do that. The Bible, I believe, unapologetically holds out to you what you would have wanted had you not been drunk with iniquity? What will make you happy? What will satisfy you? 
You give up nothing to gain Christ. More satisfying, more glorious than any experience on earth, and I would just add to that cumulatively, all glorious, all satisfying experiences, cumulatively combined, pale in comparison to the glorious and satisfying experience that we will soon have with Christ. So more satisfying than anything. Philippians 1, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now notice Paul's logic here. I don't know if he was contemplating suicide, but this, is, this would be a passage I would take people to who have had that battle. If I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ. I'm ready to go, for that is very much better. That's, that's, a, that's one Greek word, which is why I put it parenthetically. It's like superlatively better to be with Christ, more satisfying than anything on earth. Similarly, this is three slides worth of 2 Corinthians 5. I want to lead to one word, which I think is in the third slide, but you've got to follow the flow. So here we go, 2 Corinthians 5.1, speaking of more satisfying than anything. For we know that if the earthly tent, that's our body, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Here it comes. Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. Prefer means what you want. You prefer dessert over vegetables. You want them more. This is a preference issue. What do you most want? Well, Paul would say native to the heart, regenerate heart, alive spiritually heart, is a preference to not be here, but to be home with Christ. Fundamentally, Oh, for a long and healthy life. Oh, for a lot of great and glorious experiences to old age with our great-grandchildren. More than that, Christians want to be with Christ. The word there for prefer has, according to two lexicons, this range of meaning. To consider something as good and therefore worthy of choice and resolve. Another lexicon, to think of something as being good better or preferable, to choose it, to prefer it, it is better, it seems more good to you than the alternative. This is similar to Colossians 1.19, it seemed good to God, he preferred it, to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. That's what he wanted. And so the incarnate Christ, being full of the divine nature, is what God wanted. Same, same idea, preferred. Revelation, more satisfying than anything. 
When the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. They cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Next verse. It was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also. God has a number of the elect. That's his business. We don't know. He also has a number of martyrs. He knows how many will be killed for their faith, or to go back one verse, because of the Word of God, because of the testimony which they maintained. They wouldn't deny Jesus, they died for their faith. How long, Lord, until you avenge our blood? Until more of them are killed? Because I got a number that needs to be completed? So Christians come in, I mean, we need to be more clear on this, I think, in our modern West, especially where Christianism is starting to run roughshod through Christianity. Let me just ask you guys a simple question, especially assuming. I I try to go against, by the way, in my applications, what I think we most are. Easy to argue against the straw man. I think we're mostly rightish leaning church. A lot of you may be further right than me. I just want to ask you a simple question. Is it conceivable to you that God Almighty might call you to go serve Him in another place where you have no access to your presumed rights here? I think this verse requires that many of God's children do serve Him in such places. More will be martyred for their faith that have yet to die number one. Jesus is better than any and every experience on this side of eternity. Uh, But not only glorification, what will be, we actually have a present hope. This is in point two. The blessed hope at the end of the age is that Jesus Christ will return. Well, that comes directly from God's Word. Our present hope that keeps us keeping on. (laughs) The tether that's attached to Christ's heart on one end, to our heart on the other end, pulls us toward glory, is blessed hope. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared. I love that phrase, by the way. It's a reference to the incarnation. God didn't pour out a potion. He gave His Son a person. And here, Paul to Titus describes that person as the appearing of the grace of God. Or John would say, full of grace and truth. That's Jesus. So the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself to redeem us every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That blessed hope has this range of meaning. It's actually happy expectation. That would be a literal, faithful way to put it. 
really joyful hope. Makareon is from makareu, which is literally the word happy. One lexicon says this, this phraseology is, quote, pertaining to being happy with the implication of enjoying favorable circumstances. Another one says the looking forward to something with some reason for confident confidence, respecting fulfillment, hope, and happy expectation. That's what Jesus does to the hearts of his people. Present hope. Similarly, there's a series of phrases here that are important for Christian theology. Jesus isn't vaguely returning. He's personally, visibly, physically, and suddenly returning. And this is all rooted in God's word. The personal return of Jesus is actually power for present hope in the gospel. He's going to fix all this. The personal return. In Acts 1, when Jesus was lifted up in the sight of those who were gazing intently into the sky, watching him go, two angels said, right in the middle, uh, there we are. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you just watched him go into heaven. The personal return of Jesus, but also the visible, physical return of Jesus. This is a radically biblical idea. You will see him, and surprise, surprise, all those who do not believe he's God, they will see him too. Visible, physical. Philippians 3 says, our citizenship is in heaven from which, it's an interesting vantage point, from which heaven, we already eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. When he returns, he will return visibly, physically. Our humble body will be transformed into conformity with the body of his glory. Very physical, visible reality. 1 John 3 picks up on the same thing. When Jesus rose from the dead, he met with 11 scared men who were locked in a room, thought they were next on the hit list. He said to them, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself touch me. And see, for his spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet, while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in front of them. Very physical, risen redeemer. Jesus Christ will return to this earth suddenly in power and in great glory. This is actually part of our present hope. He's coming, his, his return, I believe, is imminent. I think the first century uh, writers of Scripture perceived themselves to be the terminal generation. They thought Jesus could return in their lifetime, and they actually expected that he would. And they lived every day in light of that reality, and so should we. So sudden and glorious, Mark 14, the high priest stood up, came forward and questioned Jesus. This is on trial for his life. Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer again. The high priest questioned him, saying, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And bad news for you. 
you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Sudden, glorious return. Jesus here speaking of his second advent, even while he's in the middle of his first, Paul writes the same to the Thessalonians. Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night while they were saying, they are saying, peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them and suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, they will not escape. Luke 21, sudden return. There will be signs, sun and moon and stars and on the earth, Dismay among nations and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with great power and glory. Undeniable return of Christ for every eye to see. So, hmm. Gathering of the elect. These all have less uh, scripture proofs. There are plenty of others we could have added, but Jesus will do this. Not one for whom Jesus died will be lost. This is a guarantee of the gospel, the reality of the power of the cross. He will gather his elect. Matthew 24, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. He will not lose one that the Father has given to him. He promised that in John chapter 6. That's coming upon the return of Christ. He will also raise the dead, all of them, they will be raised to judgment. This is in our point two. He will gather his elect and raise the dead. When he comes to raise the dead, 1 Thessalonians actually tells us this is a comfort to Christians. Listen to this carefully. I use this at almost every funeral. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Massively comforting truth that Jesus is going to not only gather all the elect, but that also includes all who have preceded us in death. He's not going to lose one for whom he died. He also will judge the nations and establish his kingdom. This comes from point two, right there. Judge the nations, establish his kingdom. That's two things, so let's just see them briefly in the word. This is remarkable concerning his kingdom. 1 Corinthians 15, passage I've been trying to drink in Lately, just pummeling my heart. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ's is coming. Then comes the end. What's going to happen? When Jesus, he, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. One of four citations of that psalm, putting all his enemies under his feet. 
every four citations in the New Testament, all four of which are attributed to Jesus propping his feet up on all of his enemies as the king of the universe. 2 Timothy 4.1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Who is this Jesus? The one who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. That Jesus, the judge of all men, whether people agreed today or not, all will soon agree. He's the judge. He not only will judge and establish his kingdom, he will also provide everlasting joy or eternal misery. This comes from point two. We believe that the, pardon me, we believe that the righteous will enter into the everlasting joy of their master. So let's take them one at a time. That's joy or misery. For the righteous, it's joy. But it's a particular joy. It's a Psalm 16 kind of joy. When God makes known to us the path of life, this is according to Acts 2, a reference to the prayer of Jesus. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forever. That's why I said at the beginning, you sacrifice nothing to have Christ. If what you gain outweighs what you lose, then it's a net win. There is no sacrifice. In his presence is complete joy. The thing your heart most longs for you will not be able to unknow when Jesus comes back. All you will know is everlasting joy. That's a promise of the return of Christ. Similarly, in Matthew 25, you guys know, parable of the talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into, this is a particular joy the joy of your master. It presupposes he's very happy. Hebrews 1 says, God has anointed, the Father has anointed the Son with the oil of joy more than all his companions. Wouldn't you like to spend time with the happiest person in the universe forever? That's what's coming for all Christians. The joy of your master is going to be what you enter. His own delightedness in himself forever will be yours because Jesus is that wonderful of a Savior. Matthew 19, everyone who has left houses and brothers and sisters and father and mother and children and farms for my name's sake will receive a whole lot less. Nope. Many times as much. And on top of that, eternal life to boot. Forever. Everything. Totally satisfied. His master said to him, oh, we talked about this one, well done, good and faithful servant. Jude, God is able to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, because he's that kind of God and Savior who has glory and majesty and dominion and authority forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That's what he's going to do for you. But also everlasting conscious misery for those who will not believe. These are the twin truths of the gospel. The good news is good because the bad news is really bad. Uh, it should say misery, not everlasting joy of our master. Unbelievers will go away, according to Jesus, into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. 
Romans 1, the wrath of God is already being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what is known about God is very evident within them. For God made it evident to them. They can, no one can say, I didn't know. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. There's a God, you are not him. And it's incumbent upon every man to know and honor him. We don't have that access intuitively. God must make it known, but that's another part of the reason I ask you, is it conceivable that God might send you to a place where Revelation chapter 6 could be your lot in life? Uh, people have said, well, there are no closed countries. There are just ones you can't get back out of alive. Uh, people have to go there because all those people know there's a God but general revelation, creation, stars, moons, trees, humans, general revelation is sufficient for condemnation. Only special revelation is adequate for salvation. God's word written, God's word incarnate. People must know Christ in order to be saved. Well, I said there was a bonus, and here we go. The end of all things. The affirmation says everlasting, ever-increased in ever-increasing enjoyment of all that God is for us in Christ. It comes from point three. What's the end? Where is this all headed? Never-ending, ever-increasing happiness as God displays His infinite and inexhaustible greatness and glory for the enjoyment of His people. You guys have heard the conundrum of C.S. Lewis when he was an entrenched atheist. He hated the Bible and the God who wrote it, presumably, because the Bible kept saying, praise God. Shorthand of, of C.S. Lewis's conundrum. Like, okay, you're telling me the author of the book says, praise me, worship me, honor me, glorify me, extol me. Yep, seems like a megalomaniac. Until those dots were connected, the good Velcro of the gospel. The best thing God could do for you, the most loving thing God could do for you, is give you himself. If he gave you everything in the universe except himself, he would hate you. If he gives you nothing in the universe but himself, he loves you infinitely. The most satisfying reality for any of us is the God for whom we were made. You can't be satisfied without the source that you're made for. That's what this article affirms. The end of all things is the eternal enjoyment of God. Ephesians 2 says, I love this purpose statement, this so that, why did the God who's rich in mercy rescue us from our spiritual deadness and enslavement to Satan, verse 3? Why did he do that? Why did he, in the middle of this phrase, raise us up with Jesus? Why did he seat us with Jesus in the heavenly places? For a reason. To be kind to you forever so that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ. He saved you to be nice to you forever. And the niceness He's going to give you is a thick dose of Himself for eternity. That's the end of all things. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, but then, but then, face to face. Now we know in part, but then we will know fully just as we've been fully known. When you see him face to face, all the longings of your soul will be thoroughly satisfied. One more verse. 
There will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. His bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. In that nanosecond, nanosecond, you will never be able to remember what it was like to not be fulfilled. Forever. You'll never be able to conceive anything but total joy. Forever. Soon this life will be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. So there's our lightning round overview. Uh, because I knew with 79 yeah, 79 slides. We weren't going to be doing Q&A. We do have two minutes before we're 10 minutes from our service. So I'd like to just pause for a moment and let you reflect in the Lord's presence prayerfully, and then I'll close that prayer time. Father, we acknowledge to you that the grand truths of the Bible sometimes seem so over there, so out of reach. But you say in Deuteronomy, do not say that God's promises are way up in heaven and we can't reach them, way across the sea and we can't go to them, but no, they're right here, right now. That's what you say. Lord, we just confess in a world of sickness, pain, and death, in a world of sin, both our own and the sin of others, that brings so much pain and challenge to our life. From wayward or rebellious kids to sin-riddled marriages to all kind of challenges living in a fallen world when it comes to everything. Making ends meet on the monthly budget. Finding a place to gather for a local church just time and again. We, we turn one direction and see a problem and try to turn away from it only to see ten more. Would you pummel us with your eternal promises? We're headed for the promised land. We're almost home. Give us the hope of heaven, or as you describe Jesus, the blessed hope of the return of our King. Let us look and look again to the one who's going to come and rescue us finally, fully, forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.